Hello and welcome to The Negotiating Ideas, a podcast about liberty, democracy, and pluralism. I'm your host, Omar Sadr. This first episode of the podcast would be a little unusual. It's actually Professor Jen Murtazashvili interviewing me about my book, Negotiating Cultural Diversity in Afghanistan. The conversation was originally facilitated and recorded by Institutes for Human Studies. We discussed a wide range of issues, including whether liberalism failed in Afghanistan, how divergent values were compatible or not, to the idea of modus vivendi. So here is the conversation. Thank you all for being here for this special event. My name is Michael Broderick. I'm a philosopher and a program manager with the Institute for Humane Studies. And I am delighted to have with me today Omar Sadr and Jen Murtazashvili. Omar Sadr is a research fellow at the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. Sadr is the author most recently of Negotiating Cultural Diversity in Afghanistan, published in 2020 from Routledge. Jen Murtazashvili is the founding director of the Center for Governance and Markets and associate professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. She is the author most recently of Land, the State, and War, written with Ilya Murtazashvili and published in 2021 from Cambridge Press. Dr. Sadr, or Professor Murtazashvili, thank you for being with us today, and I'll let you take it from here. Thank you, Michael. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge honor uh, to be here and to be part of this discussion today with the Institute for Humane Studies. And, you know, we've come together today to talk about liberalism and its lessons for Afghanistan. And I think a lot of us, uh, well, maybe you know, those of us who work in Afghanistan understand why this is really important. But I think for many of, of, of the people in the audience, maybe who don't know that much about Afghanistan, who have just been following it in the news, there's a lot of questions about you know, what is liberalism? Why does it matter for Afghanistan? Was the project, the international project in Afghanistan necessarily a liberal project? Um, who was behind this project? Was there any indigenous support for this project? Can, what is the fate of liberalism in Afghanistan? And what can we learn from all of this? And what are the lessons for liberalism from the past 20 years in Afghanistan? And then looking forward, what are the prospects for liberalism in a country that is now ruled by the Taliban? So Omar, I have a series of questions for you, um, you know, about these issues, about these very deep philosophical issues, these theoretical issues. But the, the biggest question I have, and I think that uh, our audience would really want to know is, um, you're here with me in Pittsburgh. How did you get here? Could you just tell us a little bit about your journey from Kabul uh, to the United States? Thank you so much, Jen. Um, let me begin by saying that I'm really humbled uh, by this invitation of IHS and uh, Michael and the team, the opportunity to discuss about liberalism in Afghanistan. Um, well, how did I end up here? It's I think um, people who follow Afghanistan in the last six months, we lost a liberal Afghanistan. Um, you may characterize it differently, but uh, however it was, there was a constitutionally enshrined um, order of rights, um, a, a sort of tolerant political system, wherein um, allowed people for the last 20 years and so to exercise their freedom and liberty. Um, and uh, of course, um, we need to also understand the fact that Afghanistan as a society is sharply 
um, divergent ethical views. It has it was polarized society, and it was a, it was not a normal exercise of liberalism or um, liberties or rights. So, so there was so much back and forth, contestations, and all that. But of course, we cannot also ignore the external dimension or external factor. But I'm not, we are not interested to talk about that today. Um, however, what happened, we lost that Afghanistan. The, the constitution is no more now Taliban as a <clears throat> radical religious fundamentalist movement and took over um, Afghanistan. And that um, uh, somehow shrank the space for any kind of critical dissent, for any kind of freedom of expression, for any kind of, for example, um, exercise of fundamental rights. So uh, most of the people, I mean, majority of Afghanistan, uh, 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 unfortunately, what we heard and, and conventional media is that Taliban are characterized as the reality of Afghanistan, quote unquote. But this is oversimplification of Afghanistan. And of course, we need to understand the fact that there's much more larger Afghanistan apart from Taliban and that they are tortured now. They are persecuted because of their either beliefs, um, because of their exercise of rights because of their ethnicity, because of their religious cost and creed. So it was impossible to live in such kind of environment. So it was not a, a choice anymore. Um, many like me, they were forced to leave the country and it's a status of exile. Uh, and of course, if you, are, if you are an academic and if you're a writer, that the status of exile is not defined or marked by existence in a certain geography, you may feel even exile in your own land, homeland sometimes, that I had that impression. But this is substantially, of course, that's a different layer of emotional burden that you have when you're in exile uh, at this moment, for example, for me. Even knowing you, um, you know, it's hard to imagine walking in your shoes and understanding how difficult this has been for, for you and for your family and for so many who have had to give up so much so quickly. Um, you know, when the, the government fell, when the Republic fell, um, you know, just a, a deeply traumatic experience. I just want to thank you for sharing all of this uh, with us today. Um, so what is to you when, you, when you think about liberalism and you think about this concept of liberalism, can you tell us a little bit about what you think its significance is for Afghanistan, for a place like Afghanistan, or for Afghanistan specifically? Uh, well, um, let me contextualize it this way. Um, almost 30 years ago, in 1988, um, British philosopher John Gray said that a particular path to justification of liberalism is a dead end. But at the same time, one year or two years later, Another very well-known political scientist, Fukuyama, say that liberalism is the highest manifestation of an intellectual creativity that human being can, and can have. And that's the end of, I think, intellectual journey of human beings. Now, speaking at this moment um, about Afghanistan, you may say that liberalism is a dead end, as John Gray was characterizing it, rather than what Fukuyama characterized it. And for, I, for me, I, I was really wondering, how can we comprehend this? Because easily you may fall in the trap of this binary of liberal and liberal that I do want to avoid that kind of boundary. Um, for me, it's not quest for that liberalism failed because you had a very illiberal, uh, vicious, fundamentalist society, right? 
that's number one. Second, also for me, there are multiple liberalisms rather than one liberalism, right? So um, clearly outlining a discrete boundary or boundary for um, a bunch of ideas might be um, somehow challenging. Uh, um, having said that, now what can we uh, now comprehend the exercise of liberalism in Afghanistan? I think first of all, the effort was in the last 20 years for a certain form of immutable rights, but at the same time, you can say transcendent values, which was considered to a large extent universal, and hence there was a push and an effort for uh, creation of universal uh, set of institutions in order to allow these values, universal values to, 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 to be exercised. Now, if you look at it from this perspective, uh, of course, liberalism has failed in Afghanistan, but I think that we can have an alternative perspective rather than just reducing liberalism to a, a, a to very uh, such kind of very fundamentalist kind of I think assumption that it is universal and then you have um, a predefined uh, just one template of liberalism. Um, so that's why when when if you have this version, of course, liberalism was contested in Afghanistan by an alternative perspective, radical Islamism which continuously depicted liberalism as a parochial ideology rather than universal. And hence, um, they got this legitimacy to, to counter liberalism um, from a standpoint that, oh, well, this is incompatible with a set of values which are defined for Afghanistan, but at the same time, liberalism is uniquely Western. And hence, um, it is not fit for Afghanistan. So um, it's really challenging, right? So how you contextualize and put liberalism in these two forms of uh, debate, wherein on one side you have liberal fundamentalism, which assumes that liberalism is universal, and hence it should be um, applied everywhere, right? Um, irrespective of context and contingencies. But at the same time, you have the other sort of fundamentalists, which totally, without any forms of discrimination, reject it, right? So to me, um, I think our endeavor should be to find a common ground or a ground between them, to not even fall in the trap of these forms of extremes, um, extreme universalism or extreme parochialism. So what would that common ground look like? Can you say a little bit more about... Um, you know, I, I, you, you noted that there are multiple liberalisms in Afghanistan, there are multiple conceptions of it, but what would that look like for Afghanistan in, in, in your ideal world? Or, you know, I, we'll get into your book in a second, but, you know, in, throughout the intellectual history of Afghanistan, um, you know, are there periods into history that we can look back on that may be examples that we can draw on um, that illustrate how liberalism can exist in the Afghan context? Well, now finding a common ground or even thinking about how can we, let's say to put it in this very famous terminology of John, John Gray to, to find this peaceful coexistence among very um, contentious or deeply incommensurable values, set of values is somehow challenging. Um, challenging in the sense that I, when I, for example, read the literature, which is a critique of liberalism, of course, the mainstream liberalism coming either from 
multiculturalist, critical multiculturalist, or even, for example, value pluralist, their assumptions are also, to me, not convincing when I apply it, or for example, when I put it in context of Afghanistan, right? Let's say, let me give you this example from Biku Parak, who's, um, let's say, a critical multiculturalist. In case of deeply divided societies, he outlines a set of values or probably solutions, which he calls it navigational devices. First one that he calls as um, a set of common authority. I mean, he suggests that we need to agree on a set of common authority. For example, that could be constitution, right? And, 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 and for him, constitution is not an ideological document, rather it is um, a political document which is crafted out of negotiations, give and take, right? So he suggests, how do you come up to a common ground? He says, in certain situations, he gives example of India and at the same time Israel, where you have ultra-Orthodox Jews, for example, and how Israel was capable to come into terms with them and, 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 and the solution that he suggests is a, some sort of concessions, right? He says, you can give concessions to even ultra-Orthodox religious groups. Now, let's say, how could we give concessions to an ultra-Orthodox religious group in Afghanistan, be it Taliban? Was it possible? And because of the nature of Taliban here, where they aim for a total win and total takeover, such kind of concession was not able, not possible. Secondly, he suggests that there should be a constitutionally enshrined system of fundamental rights. And this fundamental rights for him is narrowly defined, not very comprehensive, not very elaborate, not very detailed, but a very modest, limited number of rights should be agreed. Let me, for example, quote him. He says, in a, such a situation, society concern should either wait if, if you cannot have a consensus in that context, he says. In such a situation, the society concerned should either wait until there is a consensus or settle on a fairly thin statement of rights. Now, a question for me would be, now Taliban has taken over and any sort of concessions failed. How long the people of Afghanistan should wait and endure all such kind of sufferings that in the last six months they are going through, right? How, how many more years people should suffer or be deprived of their rights? So in such kind of situation, I think even critical multiculturalists like Biko Parak and the common ground that they he outlines may not work because he's also somehow cautious that to what extent the set of rights that we define should be comprehensive enough in order to be meaningful, right? But at the same time, it should not be substantive enough in order to uh, prescribe a specific vision of good life because then it becomes um, biased for a multiculturalist like him, right? So a solution that Biku Parag gives may not work in Afghanistan. Same as for John Gray. John Gray simply says, agree on a set of institutions. And then he goes on that even those whose ideas are not tolerant, they deserve to be incorporated in the system. Now, let's say again, Taliban's ideas are not tolerant. How, do, how can we incorporate them in a common framework of political institution? Is that possible? Because again, you will be in this vicious cycle of a group of Taliban may, if in case you have moderates of them, the others may go away and then wage another war for you, right? So the solution of John Gray is also somehow problematic, a puzzle for me, 
right? Um, that to what extent we can be tolerant to the intolerance? Is there any boundary for that or not? So to come to a simple answer would be very difficult. How to come to a common ground? Because I'm talking in context of Afghanistan and dealing and encountering with a very radical ultra-orthodox religious group. And, and uh, Omar, you touch on something that we can get to a little bit later, which is this concept of sort of modus vivendi pluralism and, and the modus vivendi critique of liberalism, uh, which is a separate project that we're working on together we'll be exploring uh, that tries to tackle these issues. And it's a very, very difficult um, very, very difficult topic. Do you want to say a little bit more about, I mean, the what is the modus vivendi approach and, and how do you think it applies uh, to Afghanistan? Well, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting topic and it's very dear to me because I think it's a continuation of what I wrote earlier, but despite the fact I didn't touch on modus vivendi in my earlier book, Negotiating Cultural Diversity in Afghanistan, but I think some of the core assumptions are close to multiculturalism, but at the same time, they are also departing from each other fundamentally on certain other things. I think the first assumption of Modis Vivendi is a challenge to traditional liberalism of John Locke, where John Locke was saying tolerance is important and tolerance is a pathway to a rational consensus, right? Um, and the liberals tend to believe that there are certain universal uh, values or ultimate ends, which are quite important for everyone. Um, and there is a rational possibility of bringing these together, right? Now, Modis Vivendi may suggest that, well, um, there might be ultimate values, but at the same time, they may not be compatible with each other, first of all, mean, meaning that you cannot join them together. And at the same time, they are they cannot be ranked together. They are incommensurable. It's not about talking about different values, even within a particular value. Let's say if you pick rights or justice for, for that purpose. Even such kind of values are deeply incommensurable meanings. For example, again, I will draw your attention to Afghanistan. And, and, in, and this is a kind of scenario where Taliban is there. Let me ask you, when you have two choices to pick between peace and justice. Both of these values are equally important, right? From a liberalist standpoint, but which one do you pick? Which one is worse? War is worse or injustice is worse, right? This is a question that John Gray himself asked, but of course he says that there is no universal uh, solution for this. And even for concepts like justice, let's say, there's one contentious issue within Afghanistan, which is Masalin the settlements in the north of Afghanistan. So from a just perspective, how do you address this issue, which is over 100 years? Any solution- I mean the, with, the, the, the settlement and uh, that issue is the settlement of Pashtun populations from Southern Afghanistan to the north. And there were this introduced uh, a lot of ethnic diversity in parts of the country that didn't previously exist. And, and you know, the, Afghanistan is not alone as a country that has faced this. Stalin did this in Russia, you know, took yeah. the entire population of Chechnya, resettled it to, to Central Asia and so forth. Um, absolutely. And, and, you know, what a question I have then is that, you know, can people conclude? And it's just a question that I have. I think that it's probably in the minds of a lot of people when they're thinking about liberalism and this issue of, you know, coming even to terms with this conversation that we're having. I think many people might argue that the liberal project, 
as we understand it, is just a Western implant, that there is inherent incompatibility with liberalism and um, a place like Afghanistan. And, you know, this is a critique, so I, I'm not arguing that this is my position, but what you're hearing in society is that democracy could have never worked, liberal values could never work in a place like Afghanistan, a place that is poor, also a place that, you know, is a predominantly Muslim society, you know, and I'm going to talk a little bit about your, your multi, get into your multicultural approach in a second. Um, but how would you address that critique? Well, this critique comes from the standpoint that liberalism has its unique history, right? It, it originates from enlightenment, right? And it's based on certain assumptions, fundamental assumptions. It, it has its roots in Judeo-Christian tradition. It's deeply invested in humanism, uh, right? So an assumption that any form of goodness or badness is inherently defined it with relationship to, to the human being. I believe that this set of values originate in a certain part of the world, but at the same time, while we appreciate the fact that they are culturally specific, there's a context to it. It, it is contingent. In that sense, I'm not a moralist, um, as because it, moral values, I think, could be cut across by political realities. Um, but at the same time, I also think that multiple other ways of life or civilizations, or let me, let's say cultures, like be it Asian, be it Muslim, be it Persian, like Afghanistan, they also have their own tradition of rights or their own notion of liberty. For example, based on what Hegel says, the very first empire which acknowledges rights is the, is the Hamid empire, right? You have Cyrus the Great, which acknowledges rights as including for the Jews. So you can have bits and pieces, episodes of history, which are of course not connected when you, when you read Eastern history, which has its own set of assumptions for how to define liberty, how to define much peaceful coexistence, how to exercise rights. But of course, Muslim civilization goes in a, in a crisis uh, if you contextualize Afghanistan and that. And in the words of Friedrich Starr, we have lost golden age. And I, it's not, I'm not here becoming nostalgic about that golden age of three centuries and between nine to 12. But you had a society wherein um, Zoroastrians, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, they were living together peacefully without, for example, forcing each other to convert, right? So there was a respect for different ideas and that their domain of liberty was exercised. But of course, now this is, there is a challenge. If you ask me um, how, for example, Afghanistan's modern encounter with liberalism, of course, unfortunately, I must say that Afghanistan didn't have a very critical substantive deal with liberalism. And what we call about any kind of liberalism in Afghanistan may not exist anything at all. It's nominal just, right? It's nominal, I, I must say. We had a constitution, Afghanistan had a constitutional movement, which, which was a struggle for fundamental rights, but that was not heavily or deeply uh, based on certain form of indigenous knowledge or belief. Rather, I must say, for example, pick the first, very first constitution in Afghanistan. Oh, I was going to say, when you speak about a constitutional movement, you mean historically speaking. Yes, historically. Yeah. And the, the, the very first one in 1923, right? The very first constitution which was crafted. And there's a good book on it. Uh, the author talks about how the 1923 constitution was crafted 
based on a negotiation and a dialogue between scholars from uh, British India to Ottoman Empire to Central Asians to Indian scholars. So you have this exercise of people coming and defining a set of institutions and what liberty means, what set of rights they want to uh, enshrine for their society. But at the same time, we don't have, unfortunately, a philosophical tradition in, in a more, much more recent history of Afghanistan that we call it liberal. So in your book, you talk about multiculturalism in Afghanistan. And, and it's for those of you who haven't picked up a copy of his book, um, it's Negotiating Cultural Diversity in Afghanistan. It was published by Rutledge in 2020. Uh, the Farsi, the Persian translation is coming out soon. No, unfortunately, that was, I think it's stuck in Iran and they, they are, there's a strong censorship there and they send me a long list of things that, that should be eliminated. And I, I should, I think I should not do that. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll find a way uh, to translate this book. It's a really important book and it's important because it, it really uh, details, I mean, it, it engages with the you know, critiques of liberalism, multiculturalism, um, grapples with cultural diversity. I think there's so many lessons for a place like the United States, which we could talk to talk about in a little bit. Um, but there's an assertion here that you make. You talk about Afghanistan, that multiculturalism in Afghanistan is, quote, a movement from below. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, when you, when you see multiculturalism, of course, it's an Anglo-American philosophical tradition, uh, which is um, crafted for societies like Canada, Britain, United States, Australia, right? So, uh, and... I mean, if you look at the context, it's completely different from that of Afghanistan. The, the, the type of diversity, the content of diversity is much more different. And here, um, multiculturalism was a policy in the Western society crafted by the state in order to address the issue of the new immigrants joining these societies, bringing these people into the core um, or policies of integration or national integration, right? How uh, this, this was a challenge, the problem of accommodation in Western societies. And it's very, very much recent, for example, for young countries like for uh, young countries like United States or Canada. But when you go in Afghanistan, diversity in Afghanistan is completely different. It's not because of a recent wave of migrants coming to the country and presenting a new value challenge or morality challenge, right? Um, so, for example, when you read philosophers like Wilkim Lita, he crafts a set of rights which are unique for immigrants, right? For the newcomers. Now you can't apply the same thing in Afghanistan. So, but in Afghanistan, you have diverse, for centuries, as I quoted this book, Friedrich Starr, which talks about different creeds and religions uh, coexisting in, in medieval Khorasan. So, there was a continuous movement of people in this region, in Central Asia, South Asia. Um, and no one is newcomer, no one is called indigenous, uh, right? So, uh, so that's why it's a, somehow different. I mean, first of all, type of diversity. Secondly, the demand for diversity or acknowledgement of diversity didn't come from the state. It came from a social movement. It, came, it was people-driven kind of urge asking the state to respect the rights of groups. Why? Because simply the, the model of a state imposed in Afghanistan the very orthodox form of Westphalian centralized state it didn't respect communities. There was a continuous urge 
first of all, to craft an autonomous individual, and that's why de-linked the individual from their communities, number one. But at the same time, the state had also a communal identity. It wanted to impose certain form of norms, values, or identities, right? So in, in that sense, I believe what some of the liberals may say, a neutral state, that's not possible when, it, when you look at Afghanistan because the state was parochial, a state had deep, was deeply invested in certain normative values. So that's why demand for multiculturalism in Afghanistan started even much more before 1970s or 60s that it emerged in, in the West. Um, uh, so of course, the vocabulary is different, the terminologies are different, but um, refer to the movements, uh, I think it's chapter five of the book, where and how these demands come from society within pressurizing the state. And the book is a really fascinating intellectual history. Um, I learned a lot of really important things from that book about these different constitutional movements, about um, you know the history of multiculturalism. But then I just want to point out sort of this tension that you, you've discerned that you, you said that um, you know, multiculturalism came from the bottom up, that it wasn't the product of the state. A challenge with the liberal approach is it tries to e extract the individual from a community, which it's really deeply embedded in. Mm -hmm. And then the state itself has a very communal identity. And so yeah. it seems like both in the social aspect and on the government aspect there's this real challenge of how to deal with the individual yeah right yeah. and what role the individual plays and is that really where the challenge of liberalism comes and have you seen that evolve over time like have these norms evolved from what you described you know from the 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 earliest stages of the constitutionalist movement and multiculturalism Individualism, as it is understood in the mainstream literature of liberalism, is, of course, a set of ultimate values and norms that define, for example, a state of an individual independent of its affinity. So it is a claim of individual versus the collectives or communities. Uh, now, I do not want to fall in the trap of communitarians that say that individual's identity is exclusively constituted by their culture and individual doesn't have the liberty to redefine the ends, right? I, I think I'm much more closer in that sense with what John Gray says that, of course, there are different ways of life, but these are not individuated from each other and individuals can cross these boundaries and draw their values from different set of cultures and different set of ways of life. That's somehow different from communitarianism. Also, the problem with multiculturalism is that it somehow, the typical multiculturalism, it somehow conflates cultural diversity with ethno-racial di diversity. So when you talk about diversity, it automatically translates from a multicultural standpoint to a, to a different races. Right? So now we need to understand that human beings, we cannot box them or put them in a very segregated kind of categories called ethnicity or race, which are predefined and individuals doesn't have choice. So I think between individualism that liberals define and also this extreme urge for the fact that individuals are defined by their community and they don't have any choice to redefine their ends, there is a middle crown where, where you say that, yeah, 
um, individuals are invested deeply in their communities, but at the same time, they can negotiate and renegotiate these boundaries. So, you know, before we get to the Q&A, I just want to ask you sort of one final question here, though, then. Sort of the big question is, you know, did liberalism fail these past 20 years? Um, you, can we say that it was a complete failure? If we look at people like you, I, 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 I have a hard time believing that. And then, you know, how would you assess, well, you know, I think we can all agree that it didn't live up to its promise, the liberal mm. project. Why was that? I think it failed. Uh, I, I say it has failed because I do not think that we have a linear progress of history from um, and, uh, something where, where you defined the spot of start and then somewhere it ends because failed may also say that you can restart it, you can redefine it, and then again go back to the same. So it's a cyclical process for me. Rather than if you say liberalism did not fail, that means, oh, well, this struggle for whatever you define it as a, as a progress continues, right? My sense of progress and how do we define this liberalism is that, yes, we need to acknowledge the fact that liberalism failed its, to its promises in a context like Afghanistan. And that was because of certain assumptions that liberalism had. Particularly, I mean, it's not a philosophical debate in Afghanistan, but you have liberals who continuously try to create binaries between what is secularism and what is religious uh, identity and continuously, for example, even cursing people who are religious, right? So, I, I mean, this is very simplistic in a context like Afghanistan. Religions in certain contexts could be very, very important in countering radicalism, right? There are research which shows that religion can counter radicalism, and, uh, for example. And so how do we define certain things like secularism? How, and how, how do we define the identity of the state to be purely neutral? Uh, it was not possible. So liberals should acknowledge that a neutral state, I think, is impossible. Um, a state may take side culturally, morally, uh, and that's inevitable because you, a state doesn't have a choice. For example, let's say for, for practical purposes, a state should have an official language. What do you do with that? You need to pick for one language, right? But that doesn't mean that you, uh, um, uh, you cannot create a, a state which should not be parochial. So second thing is um, this issue of a state being parochial. So we need, liberals need to acknowledge that um, in a context wherein you have social, cultural, moral diversity, a state should be recrafted. And for example, that means uh, a decentralized state may work for Afghanistan or a constitutional form of democracy may work for Afghanistan, which was a taboo uh, in case of, it was not just nationalists resisting this, even liberals, I don't know, because liberals believe in a universal citizenship and universal citizenship is constituted based on individualism and hence any form of collective identity was, was a danger for liberals. Uh, and hence, I think that here liberals need to acknowledge that also. So we need to rethink about secularism. We need to think about the notion of progress. We need to rethink about a neutral state and many other things, including how do we define an individual self? Is it an ind autonomous, discrete individual or not? So if we look at this, you know, what's this dynamic that you've just described, how then we do, do we describe, uh, how can we explain the rise of the Taliban? Like, what do you think, given this framework that you've just laid out, sort of in concrete terms, why, uh, why does that then lead us to the Taliban as the outcome? 
because I think we try to um, set or define certain form of master Archimedean uh, form of points. Or in other words, we, need, we tend to define overarching standards based Who's on- we? Who is we here? The liberals, I mean, sorry. Uh, okay. okay. The liberal project. Um, define an overarching standard and try to force Afghanistan to come and or align itself to that standard. Okay, so what is the problem with this standard? The problem is that it prevented any form of negotiation and acknowledgement, first of acknowledgement that we have incommensurable values in Afghanistan, right? Afghanistan is a country which is sharply, it has sharply divergent ethical views. So you, if, if, first of all, if you acknowledge it, second step is that you need to negotiate with it, right? There should be a common ground, a compromise and all that. So that didn't happen. Um, there was a military- Why? Court. Why didn't it happen? Because the system, of course, um, at, at the, the way system was crafted in the last 20 years, I mean, in 2003 and four, it was not so much natural. It was not organic. It was just dropped from above. Uh, so society didn't have, a, we didn't take a breath and say, okay, let's talk, let's negotiate. For example, what do we mean by right to freedom of religion? Have you ever come across a, a substantial debate in 2004 or five, the very first time years that we were crafting the system? There wasn't a space, right? So if there wasn't a space for that, so that kind of compromise didn't take place. And the compromise didn't take place because there was a military might crushing everyone who was not compromising uh, with liberal values. So this was the external, so the role of the United States, you mean? Yes, to a large extent. So, if you didn't have United States in Afghanistan as a factor, take it out in 2002 or three, things would have been substantially, fundamentally different. In a positive way for liberalism? In, in, in how do you think things would have worked out? Yes, I don't I, want to ask you to speculate too much. And I think we, we yeah, we, we, can, we can refer to some incidents before, for example, 9-11. Let me say a case wherein Amacha Masood went to Europe and he, he outlined his vision for women rights, human rights, political system, democracy. And it was not under pressure of the West, the way that, for example, now the West is pressurizing Taliban to, to change, right, to, to moderate itself. That that kind of um, proposition from Amacho Masood came, I think it was somehow organic because he fought for 20 years and he realized that, okay, what is the best model of governance for Afghanistan? And hence, what he suggested in terms of democracy or respect for human rights was, or, it came out of those dynamics in Afghanistan. So, I mean, a military intervention is, of course, it, it will disturb the natural organic process of a society, the way it will interact with each itself. So, so then in, in just the final question, see, I promised several times it's the final question. So basically what you're saying, if I think I understand you correctly, I don't want to put words in your mouth, though. Many people in Washington will say um, the bond process that created the 2004 Constitution that culminated in the 2004 Constitution was a success. That, you know, it was after the bond process, it was this hugely successful process where the United States brought all these bear, these factions together and it created the Constitution. So we should look back and still celebrate that process. And you're, you're suggesting that might not be the case. Well, because what we observe on 15th August 
I think we need to rethink our assumptions if that is an, uh, one of the assumptions. Well, people still say this in Washington. Well, I, <laughs> Even don't after, so. yeah. I don't think so because okay. first of all, <clears throat> in terms of negotiation of values, right? Afghanistan didn't have enough time to negotiate. There was enough, there was no tolerance for negotiation because even the tolerance was defined in a way that there is ultimate truth. And if we, we tolerate you, it is because you have the opportunity to reach that ultimate truth. We didn't have idea about multiple truths. Secondly, the way political system was crafted, it was, as you recently in your article characterized it, it was copy paste of an old authoritarian system from 1960s to uh, 2003 or 2002. And this, this was incompatible with the fabric of society, right? Um, a society which is, for example, like lowland countries in Europe, like Switzerland, um, which came out of that kind of very, I mean, a system which is consociational to a large extent, democracy, uh, which is consociational, which provides a space for everyone. So. That um, that didn't come out in Afghanistan, so so that's why I think um, not not it was not sustainable. What we crafted in two thousand three, it was not sustainable. And I think I have I, I have this judgment in my book, Negotiating Cultural Diversity, that first of all, Afghan nationalism as a project of assimilation failed in the country, failed in the sense that it could not assimilate everyone. Secondly, it failed as a political project because it could not establish a stab- stable polity. Uh, and, 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 if, and, and we repeated the same thing because 2003, you said it was revival of 1960s. I'm saying it was revival of a Westphalian centralized model, which was crafted by Amir Abdurrahman Khan. Who was the emir of Afghanistan from 1880 to 1901, right. who created yeah. a heavily, heavily centralized state uh, whose legacy is still felt today. Um, and, a, and, a, and a very violent ruler. Um, so I'm just going to get to some questions now from the audience. We've got a lot of questions that have come in, both individually and, and through the chat. Um, so one question is whether the liberal state paradigm is really capable of explaining the state crisis, the current state crisis in Afghanistan. And do you think that we need another paradigm? So uh, one suggestion is Charles Tilley, um, you know, his paradigm of, of a political settlement framework or other kinds of frameworks. Are we looking... Should the answers be found? And if, if liberalism failed, should we be looking to liberalism as a potential solution for the way forward? Um, I think there's a strong literature coming from Indian experience. Um, and because Indians are also not so much comfortable with the way state is crafted or presented um, from the Eurocentric perspective, uh, because that's also India is a quite diverse country. And there are scholars, for example, Navnita Cheda Behra, they have been debating about how can we present an alternative uh, form of the state, which is different from the very traditional Westphalian model. Uh, because in this form of the state, at least one of the key assumptions is that a state should have a nation. So that's why you have a nation state. And this is problematic because the way you define the dynamics of society and a state is very simplistic on one hand. Secondly, it's one way where a state um, tries to create um, a set of people with a very homogeneous, unified culture, and that's, that's not possible, right? So this means redefining the relationship of state and society, number one. Secondly, redefining the institutions of a state, the way state can be probably 
much more respecting self-governance in certain contexts. I mean, even Western experience, I mean, I, I, we should not even draw this very clear boundaries between Western and Eastern, but even what the experience now currently is at the European Union that shows that we can continuously rework the institutions and, and recraft them. But the fact is like in, in communities, in countries like Afghanistan, a state is always defined in a Weberian term, that it's a set of institutions which should have a um, universal monopoly over violence, and then and hence it does not respect any form of autonomous government. This is destructive because if you want to build an efficient state, you can utilize the informal institutions, as you have discussed, for example, in your book, that informal institutions could be much more efficient in terms of building a state, which is stable, but also in terms of service delivery. So I think I, if we revisit to literature by Ashish Nandi, who discusses nationalism in India, uh, who's a philosopher, or Behra, that helps us to rethink the, in, the polity called nation state. Yeah, here's a question that I, 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 I'm really tempted to ask you. So I'm going to, um, you know, you have your own thoughts on liberalism. How can you separate your perspectives on liberalism from your own personal experiences? And can you speak to how your own personal experiences inform your perspectives on liberalism? Well, um, I think uh, I, I do uh, endorse um, so many liberal assumptions. Uh, but at the same time, for many others, I might have certain other kind of um, thinking, which is based on contingency or context, uh, as these two terms are, for example, defined by David Richman. Um, um, when I say, for example, let's say personally, when I say respect for cultures um, from a critical multicultural perspective, or let's say some assumptions from Modis Vivendi, but at the same time, I'm also conscious of the fact that how recognizing collective rights or collective identities in certain contexts may violate individual rights or individual autonomy or women rights in context of Afghanistan. Let's say some people nowadays, I mean, in context of social media, I'm not talking about intellectual debates, but they say, well, let's go for federalism and allow Pashtuns to have any, more, any ways of life that they want. They can subjugate their women let them do, but we Tajiks, we do not want to subjugate women. So, I mean, this is not a solution. Um, federalism is not, of course, federalism pre gives you a space for recognition of collective identities or collective practice of um, power um, in, a, in a very mul multicultural setting, but at the same time, it doesn't give a space for violating individuals' autonomy or rights. So, um, so in that sense, for me, um, it's not either or between collective rights or individual rights. So personally, I mean, I struggle for an Afghanistan which should be tolerant for the rights of dissent. Everyone should have the privilege to speak their, their mind. It's, it's a right, right? So even if we do disagree with them, I, I mean, not to the extent that we disagree with, with the ones who are not tolerant, but, uh, but such kind of things are possible only from a liberal tradition. So liberal tradition is valuable in that sense, uh, the way that it provides this dignity because it's it's deeply, I mean, it's look at from, from a Hegelian perspective, it is based on dignity, right? It's based on recognition. Uh, and hence rights also 
provides its meaning in this context for me, I think. Rights should be uh, directed towards human dignity. If we acknowledge and respect human dignity, hence they should have rights. So I think where you're leaning into, and it's, I think it's a, a challenge with like this modus vivendi perspective, right? Live and let live. Um, but a question we have here uh, from Kamran Hakiman uh, is uh, how do you negotiate how do you balance avoiding relativism with this notion that communities should be able to self-negotiate their value? How do you how do you avoid relativism? Um, so you're proposing, I think, what you propose is something much more universal. You've contrasted that with sort of this federalism approach, um, but would would you allow some kind of range um, for different views that? maybe in, in certain communities, issues of gender are treated differently than others, or everything should be absolutely liberal in a certain individual sense, that you're, you're falling much more in the classical liberal tradition, perhaps, than uh, sort of the modus vivendi critique. No, I think I didn't speak of relativism. Relativism is somehow different. And here, traditions like um, modus vivendi is, is realist rather than relativist. Um, here, for example, even scholars like um, Isaac Berlin, when he talks about uh, romantic scholars like those who spoke about diversity, like Visco or Heather, he acknowledges the fact that none of them endorses relativism. Because if you talk about relativism and this embodiments of in a specific forms of life will vary across cultures. Uh, and there's nothing universal, there's nothing objective. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, well, we have diversity, but this diversity is tangible, it is knowable, it is objective, it's out there, but at the same time, it's incommensurable, right? Um, so if X, Y, Z cultures are different, they are different, but it doesn't mean that we don't have enough capacity to, to know them, right? For example, in, in my culture, in Persian culture, um, when you read Maulana, Maulana Balhi Rumi, um, so he talks the example, there's a famous example of elephant in a dark room and everyone touches one part of the elephant, but no one understands this is an elephant because whoever touches the part, any part of elephant, because it's dark, they, they have their own assumptions of the elephant. They might say it's a pillar, it's whatever assumptions they have. So Maulana says there's an ultimate truth but we as a human beings, we, don't, we are not capable enough to, to reach to that truth. Hence, we are knowledge is relative. The realists do not suggest that. They say, well, we have capacity to understand this. And even values of peace, rights, or justice, um, they make incompatible demands in itself. It's not because we can't understand them. We have knowledge, but it's just because of their nature that they make incompatible demands. Now, this is all I say to, to reject relativism. But. Well, no, we actually just have time for one more. Believe it or not, our hour is almost up. And I want to end it with this question. Um, you're new here to the United States. Um, and these the debates that you have highlighted here are, are questions that we are having in our own society. Uh, there's real questions about liberalism, I think, under attack from both the right side and the left side of the spectrum. Um, and you know, there's really serious questions um, about the future of liberalism here. And you mentioned that liberalism may be incompatible with contexts like Afghanistan. And 
you know, we could also argue that what we're seeing right now is a rise of illiberalism around the world coming from various sides of the political spectrum. So I'm just curious if you could, we could wrap things up here on your thoughts on, uh, we, we, we know that there's no notion of progress. We, we reject teleologies, okay? Um, we reject the notion of progress, um, that we're on some historical trajectory. But what are your thoughts on liberals' prospects for the future? Do you think that we can expect to see a resurgence of liberalism throughout the world? Or is this really a critical juncture? Okay, so let me go back to what I said at the beginning. I believe in liberalisms. So that's why if there are liberalisms, I do not suggest that Afghanistan is incompatible with liberalism. I may say what Isaac Berlin may suggest, which is a very much modest suggestion of a liberal idea, wherein he settles on sort of very minimal right. sort of... So in, incompatibility is probably the wrong term here, but there was an inherent tension, right? In the way that it was right. implemented, the yeah, way that yeah, it was yeah. described, the way that it was you know, sold to the people, right? right As an right, idea, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. yeah. No, but you're also right when it comes to United States and the West that uh, you have this attack on liberal ideas, both from the very radicals and, and both sides of the spectrum. And let me just refer here to a recent very beautiful post podcast that I heard from uh, Shadi and Demir, where they have a conversation with um, a, a left intellectual uh, who is, I think, called Sam Adler Bell. And this guy has written a paper on the Republic titled Radical Young Intellectuals Who Want to Take Over American Rights. Um, and where he, he talks about a new group of rights, new, new rights. They admire for a, a religious state in certain senses, um, theological state, right? They, they, they believe that the older guards of um, conservatives did not protect America enough. And, and liberalism, for example, in that sense, didn't have enough thick common values. So because you had in 90s or 80s, let's say, the liberal Liberalism in America suggested a private Christian values, but at the same time, a common shared liberal values. But that common shared liberal values was not thick enough, and, and hence the new right thinks that America is under attack by the left, uh, which are taking over everything, um, the Senate or, for example, except Fox News, let's say. What we now subtle here is how can we um, characterize this danger to, to, to a tolerant liberal democratic society, because in this society, everyone should uh, have an, a space and opportunity to take part in common life in a, in a democratic way, right? And these radical, be it intellectuals or be it common public base like Trumpism, right? Um, should not threaten um, the basis of these institutions um, and take over in a very fundamentalist way. I think. Uh, liberalism is facing this kind of a struggle and crisis. And if we do not follow that uh, teleological understanding of history, that there's a progress towards a defined uh, end. But I may, I may say this is a dialectical kind of um, give and take in, in societies. And, and, and I hope that we will be enough to at least do not allow these democratic institutions to go away. On that note, on this dialectic, um, I think we have come to the end of our hour. Omar, thank you so much for this. This was really, truly enlightening. I think it's given us a lot to think about. 
um, a lot. I have more questions now than I have answers. And I just want to thank Michael Broderick and his team at IHS for making this conversation possible. Omar, I've known you for, for a while now, and um, I've learned a lot from this conversation, just having the opportunity to, to talk about these kinds of issues. So thank you so much. I'm truly honored to have this conversation with you, Jen. I'm also grateful to Michael Broderick and IHS for facilitating this conversation to talk about political liberalism and Afghanistan. And finally, thanks to our audience for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to this podcast and make sure to share it with your friends on social media. I would like to also request you to purchase a copy of my book, Negotiating Cultural Diversity in Afghanistan. Thanks for listening. Looking forward to talking to you in the next session.